Kim, and we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. De- had a lot of quality debunking debunkin lately. Yeah, debunking donuts, remember? De- debunking donuts. Uh, there's not really going to be debunking this week. No donuts? No donuts. Or next week for that matter, because oh. we're doing a double. A twofer. A twofer. Well, and not just a twofer. Um, like, this is, you know, I'm sure we'll shock everyone to learn this is our favorite season. Spooky season. It's spooky season. Not only are we doing a two-part episode, uh, we're going to have episodes two weeks in a row so that Ooh. we can release an episode on Halloween itself. Halloween. Halloween. So I think that's very exciting. Yeah, uh, man. It also means, since it's it's my turn to lead an episode, guess what time it is, Gabby? What time is it, Kim? Serial killer time. Ooh, nothing spookier than this real serial killer, because sometimes people are scarier than ghosts. Oh, people are terrifying. And I am who I am. I, I gotta I gotta be true to myself. <laughs> that's fair. Uh that's fair. Now this uh this killer I'm gonna be talking about today is an interesting one. Um I will be the first to admit that when I first kind of came across him, I knew his name. <laughs> Oh, I knew a little bit about some of the kills, but very, very, uh, I, I knew a little bit about the kills, but, but not a whole lot. It was, it was not something I knew a lot of details on. So are you familiar with Rodney Alcala? It sounds super familiar to me, but I can't place it. Yeah. And I, and he's one of those names where you're like, "Ah, I've probably seen him in the news or I've seen him on a documentary or something, but I can't quite recall why I know him. Um, you might know him by another name. Oh? He was given a name, a moniker, partially because he was a contestant at one point on the 1970s show, The Dating Game. Oh, is this the dating game killer? Yes, Gabby, this is the dating game killer. <laughs> what a what a moniker, man. What a moniker. Well, what I will say, though, okay, so... Yes, it, it was revealed uh, as he he became more connected to some other cases. It it was revealed that he had been on the dating game and hence getting this nickname. But as I started to dig into him, I became really shocked that outside of this like kind of bizarre detail, we don't talk about him more. Yeah, because the violence and cruelty of his crimes is is not just shocking, but the number of victims we probably haven't even identified. Oh, dang. Seriously? Yeah. Oof. Today, we're going to be talking about Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. All right. Before we really dive into this, I do want to give a little bit of a warning. Um, some of the victims involved in this case are... Uh, young children, uh, I believe the youngest is eight years old and involves talk of of child endangerment, child sexual assault, and murder. So understandably, these topics can be very heavy and and intense, and it might not be the episode for you if this is something that's going to be a little too hard to listen to. So if that is the case, again, we have many other episodes that you can pick that maybe will be a little bit of a better fit. Uh, so I just want to give a little little warning so you know what kind of things we're getting into. Rodney Alcala was born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor. What a name. There's a lot of names there. On August 23rd of 1943, he was born to Raul and Anna Marie Gutierrez in San Antonio, Texas. Cool. Now, growing up, Rodney was a well-liked kid. He had an older brother and sister, as well as a younger sister. And uh, people who knew him talked about what a serious learner he was. Nobody had a whole lot of negative things to say about him. He went primarily to Catholic schools, was very social, had friends. His mother was quite religious. Faith was important to her. Now, the timeline for the next couple of years is a little muddy. Uh, there were some variations on dates. I mean, again, anytime you're looking at some of these cases where there's been decades since. Uh, 
Uh, it looks like in 51, when Rodney was about eight years old, his grandmother, who lived with him and his family at the time, she became ill. She decided she wanted to live out the rest of her years in her home country of Mexico. So his mom moved him and his siblings to Mexico to be with her mother. And this was a huge culture shock for the kids who were used to the city and the United States. Uh, The area they moved to was a lot more rural. And this was also their first time attending a non-religious school. That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. Oh, God. Catholic schools, man. (laughs) Can't speak to that personally, but I know you can. It's, you know, I, I it, it's, 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 it's a special, it's its own special thing. Um, now, Rodney would also get a further shock when his father would leave the family, uh, which is rude. It's very rude. rude, man. It's very rude. The family pulled together and Rodney grew very close to his grandmother. And so when she died a few years later, Again, this was a major blow to a kid. Uh, He's 11 or 12. They moved back to the United States to Los Angeles. Oh, my hood. Your hood. Uh, Unlike a lot of men who go on to be serial killers, all accounts show he had a good, caring family. His mother adored him. His siblings loved him. None of those big red flags you see in a lot of those other cases popped up. Now, of course, we never know what could have gone on behind closed doors, especially if no one's ever spoken to it. Sure. But there was a lack of evidence. Evidence. Uh, to show that there was any kind of abuse or or psychological trauma when he was younger. All right. He continued his reputation of being a strong student. He graduated high school in 1960 at the top of his class. He joined the army. Oh, that'll immediately screw somebody up. (laughs) I mean, he joined it uh, right after he graduated, too. He was a paratrooper and a clerk. Wait, so did he actually go into battle? Uh, No. Oh, okay. Well, then never mind. I take it back. Yeah. Well, partially, there's a reason he never went into battle. Oh. Um, Okay, so about a year into his service, his father died. Okay. And his father had remarried. Uh, I did read something that said he was close to his father when he died. I didn't really get a whole lot of other details about their relationship. Okay. Um, While he was stationed at Fort Campbell, he went AWOL a number of times. Uh, that's not weird at all. Yeah, that's not something you're supposed to do. And no one really thought, hey, man, this is kind of strange. Maybe you should talk to somebody about this. So in June of 1963, he took a weekend pass to Nashville, Tennessee. According to an Army report, he then stole a car, robbed a driver of their credit card, and fled to New York City. That's very specific. (laughs) It's very specific. The report would go on to say that while he was in New York City, quote, one night after leaving a bar, he saw a young lady walking down the street. He followed her a short distance and struck her with a Coke bottle. Uh, yikes. Yeah. That's not something one normally does in polite society. No, not at all. Uh, She was able to get away from him, thankfully. From there, he went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And at this point, he's arrested and charged by the military justice authorities. Not for assault, though. Not for hitting a woman with a Coke bottle. Just because he was absent without leave. Because he was AWOL. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this, like, reminds me of cases that have to do with... um, government and any kind of um i don't know army navy any of those choose your own adventure that hides information or just like excuses behavior this whole case is just such another screaming example of failure after failure after failure on the parts of the legal system the parts of of you know again systems that should have been in place to protect people Mm mm-hmm uh, or to give warning signs that maybe some of this behavior is problematic. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was transported back to Fort Campbell. He escaped and hitchhiked to California, where he went to his mom's house. 
She was able to convince him he should turn himself in. So good for you, mom. But while he was at her house, he said he exposed himself to his younger sister. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, it gets better because later he'd report, quote, he did not know if he wanted to have sexual relations with her. Uh, it's his sister? Ew. Mm-hmm. So they sent Rodney to a military psychiatrist who said that he knew right from wrong, but, quote, that he is totally unsuitable for further military duty. Do they say why? I mean, for me, it was like, duh. Well, but also, like, it seems counterintuitive to say that someone knows right from wrong. It doesn't, though. Because you're dealing with somebody who understands what they're doing is wrong. Oh. They just don't care. Okay, thank you for the clarification. Yeah, and that's hence one of the reasons they're unsuitable for military duty is like, you know you shouldn't do something like hit women over the head with Coke bottles. You just don't care. And you want to do it anyway. Okay, noted. Uh, he was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder. <laughs> You know what's really funny is I'm reading about that right now in school. Hey. <laughs> um, all this kind of shit's so fascinating to me. I just love it. Anywho, mm-hmm. continue. Murder, man. Murder. So what blew my mind about this whole thing, though, is he pled guilty. All he had to do was pay a fine. His rank was reduced, but he was still discharged honorably without a blemish on his record. Oh, government. That boggles my mind. At this point, too, Army washed their hands of him, and they're like, well, he's not our problem. But you know what went away when they did that? What? His psychiatrist. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So he does what any fine, upstanding young man kicked out of the Army would do. He went to study at the School of Fine Arts at UCLA and graduated in 1968. Hey, Good on him for going to school. (laughs) Good for you, buddy. On October 25th of 1968, eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was on her way to school. She'd been staying with her family at the Hotel Chateau Marmont in West Hollywood. Yeah. I did Sinead O'Connor's makeup there. Oh, really? It's like she-she, man. Oh, yeah. It's haunted, too. Yeah. Uh, Well, so their house had burnt down. They were staying there while they were, you know, figuring out their living situation. Sure. Uh, But she really enjoyed exploring the area around the hotel, which meant she was often late for class in the morning. Okay. She didn't really like riding the bus. Uh, I didn't get a whole lot of details as to why. It's possible she was getting bullied. She may have just also enjoyed walking. May I ask a question? Is this a school bus that we're talking about or public transportation? You know, I don't know. Because if you were going to say public transportation, I could say, um, as someone who is from Los Angeles, no one rides public transportation when you're from Los Angeles. So I'm hoping it was school bus and not public transportation. But it's also just, I don't know, I guess there's a different time. It's very possible, too, that it was public transportation because their house burned down. They're staying at a hotel. So she's not going to be on the normal school bus route. That's fair. Well, public transportation wasn't super safe even back then. So maybe that's why she didn't ride it. That's possible. No, that would that would actually make sense. Um, So this morning she's walking. A car pulls up next to her and the man inside calls out. Hey, sunshine, do you need a ride? That's not creepy at all. Not creepy at all. And she informed him she could not talk to strangers, but he was persistent. And I even read an account that said he told her he knew her parents. Ah, that's what they always say. And she's wary of him, but she did eventually get into the car with him. But this was witnessed by a man named Donald Haynes, who thought this whole thing seemed sketch. So Donald, we like Donald. Be like Donald. (laughs) He followed the car. Oh, good on him. He watched them pull up to an apartment building and he saw that the little girl seemed to be uncomfortable and decided he should call the police. Good on Donald. Um, Within minutes, officers showed up, including one named uh, Chris Kamako. I watched an interview with this dude. He's a character. (laughs) Um, So he gave an interview. He gave a lot of interviews, but uh, most of these quotes are from an interview he gave to ABC. 
And he'd recall, quote, I went and called in a request for a backup unit. I went to the front door and started knocking. I could hear someone running around. So this man answers the door and claims he had just been in the shower. So, quote, I see this male person on the other side. No clothes, not dripping with water, no towel. I said, okay, you need to open the door right now. I need to come in. He said, wait, let me put my pants on. I said, okay, you got three seconds. Oh, dang. So he waits a couple seconds. Guy doesn't come back, and he's hearing noises inside. So our friend Chris breaks the door down. Good on Chris. (laughs) Good on Chris. But he sees something just utterly horrific. Quote, to the right was a dining room. To the left was a living room. Straight ahead was a kitchen. Here was this little girl. She was naked, beaten, bloody. There was a metal bar pressed into her neck where she'd been having her airway cut off. Her shoes are lying nearby and she wasn't breathing. Oh, no. Kamako would say, she had been raped. There was no breathing, and I thought she was dead. We all thought she was dead. But she wasn't dead? Well, so they're looking around the apartment. They notice photography equipment. They see picture after picture of young girls. And suddenly they hear, quote, she was gagging and trying to breathe. And I thought, one for the good guys. She's going to make it. So their priority shifted to helping Tally. And Alcala got away. Oh, but I mean, I get it. Like you want. Oh, you wanna absolutely. And you go back and you look at the fact. I mean, this is this is the kind of situation where. If a good Samaritan hadn't called the police, if this cop hadn't clocked real quickly, something shady was going down, something bad was going down. Those are the only reasons she's alive. She would not be alive otherwise. For sure. She was rushed to the hospital. Uh, when she first got there, the doctor said there was no hope that she would survive. Oh. But she pulled through. She was in a coma for 32 days. Holy shit. But she recovered. Damn. Her family moved to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico after the attacks. They wanted to get a fresh start. So as they further examine the apartment, they find uh, Rodney Alcala's student ID card, as well as hundreds of sexually explicit photos of young women and boys. They start combing through his life. They're interviewing people who knew him. No one thought it was possible that they could have the right person. Ron was such a great guy. It had to be a mistake. Ironically, one of the detectives involved in this case was actually Steve Hodell. Oh, no Does that way. name ring a bell? Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that from the... Um... Wait, you go go ahead. Well, we brought him up actually more than once because he's a former detective. He's written a number of books, including Black Dahlia Avenger, about how he thinks his father was the person that murdered the Black Dahlia. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our friend Steve. Oh, Steve. Um, Oh, Steve. (laughs) I just, I don't know why when that popped up, I thought that was, like, just irrationally funny. Um I love when stuff he, is connected like that. It's just such a good time. Yeah. Well, and it, it, I guess, you know, it's similar to, because all of this stuff's in California. Yeah. So it's it's not dissimilar to when I'm looking at some of the cases in Washington and you see people on the Green River Task Force who were on Bundy's Task Force, who were on this guy's Task Force and that guy's Task Like, it, it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes I'm struck with how. Well, because timing, too, has a lot to do with it of when. Yeah. And how long certain people serve to do the same type of work. So, Uh yeah, that makes sense. But uh, so he recalled interviewing because he he worked the case. Right. So he recalls interviewing one of Alcala's arts professors at UCLA who apparently said, you have the wrong guy. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Did he mean to rhyme? No, he didn't. I think that's extra funny. Um, and also it's that, you know, quote from from the end of Psycho, like, I'll show them I wouldn't even hurt a fly. Uh, it will, uh, Not a fly, maybe a person, though. Yeah, maybe he'll leave the flies alone, but he'll do horrible, horrible things 
to people. So they're searching for him. They can't find him. He's put on the FBI's most wanted list. Oh, damn. To avoid detection, he changes his name to John Berger. What? Why is that? Yep. That's a real dumb fake name. That's the it's dumbest fake dumb name freak. I've ever heard. <laughs> Isn't that the last name, though, uh, of one of Carrie's boyfriends on Sex and the City? Also, one of my childhood friends, her last name was also Berger, but spelled oh, with an geez. E. Yeah, yeah. B-E-R-G-E-R. Yeah. That's how he spelled it. Yeah. It's, I think that's a very, like, Russian name. I don't know. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> But he, he enrolls at NYU School of the Arts. Are you ready for this? Because he, he had a he had a special professor that he studied under. You know who he studied under? Oh no, tell me. Roman Polanski. It's just is this like the inception of all like This is like six stories? degrees to a serial killer. It's yeah. six degrees to a serial killer. This is the game we play. And I like, okay, honestly, I thought about making some kind of quippy joke here. They're both so deplorable as human beings. I just don't, like, I can't even think it's funny. Um, so, yeah, there you go, folks. Roman Polanski mentored a serial killer. Even your neighbor thinks that's fucked up. <laughs> even my neighbor thinks that's <laughs> fucked up. Um, yeah. <sighs> anyway, uh, so once again, Alcala finds himself in his element. He loves school. He's making lots of friends. He's incredibly social. He's liked. He even worked on some film crews. Uh, a detective, Stephen Mack, who worked on his case, would later say of him, quote, he had a gift of the gab that worked <gasps> with the girls. I think the average guy, and I consider myself an average guy, you see an attractive girl in a bar, and you probably won't talk to her because you think she'll shut you down. Well, he wasn't afraid of talking to anyone. He could talk them into posing for his photographs, and it worked over and over. That's scary, though. Like, mm -hmm. also, mm -hmm. sidebar, my first license plate was Gift Heart Gab. Fun fact. <laughs> Gabby. You can thank Eileen for that. She gave it to me as a gift for my 16th birthday. Eileen. Takes on a different meaning now. <laughs> now it's not so fun. <laughs> not so cute. So uh, he takes a job as a summer counselor <clears throat> at a New Hampshire arts camp for children. Because let's put this dude around more children. That's great. That's what you do. But, but I mean, like, you, you got to love. It's the 60s, right? No background checks. because And he had an alias, so it wouldn't have even mattered. done anything. Yeah. So he began in the summer of 69. And again, Everyone loves him. He's a natural with kids. They thought he was great. In June of 1971, he would receive a degree with honors from NYU. Damn. And he would celebrate this by going out and attacking another woman. Ay, ay, ay. This sounds like Ted Bundy, to be honest. There's a lot of parallels to me, uh, even, even down to a lot of the, the kinds of women he targeted. But just like the likeness, like people really liking oh, yeah. him. People liked him. He's charming. Mm -hmm. uh, he seemed to be able to just get away with stuff. Mm -hmm. Cornelia Crilly. Born and raised in Queens, she grew up in a fairly normal family with two brothers and two sisters. Those who knew her described her as very friendly and funny. She was five foot four with brown hair and blue eyes. All she ever wanted to be was a TWA stewardess. At age 23, she achieved her goal and moved into an apartment in New York City with two other flight attendants to save money. June 24th of 1971. She spoke to her mother on the phone to give her her new address. Her mom had to go out, so she said she'd call her when she got back. When she tried calling her later, she couldn't get a hold of her. Tried a few more times over the next few hours, couldn't get a hold of her. So concerned, she called Cornelia's boyfriend, Leon Bornstein, and said, would you go check on her? Leon went over to her apartment and got no response when he knocked on the door. Now he's concerned. He calls the police. They find their way in through the back window. Her body was found in the second bedroom. She'd been strangled to death with her own nylons. Uh, there was a New York Times article that said it was a rope, so just... Either or. Sure. Her blouse was partially stuffed in her mouth, bra pulled over her head. She'd fought back against whomever had attacked her, 
There were scratches on her legs. She had bite marks on her breast. She had been raped. It also became obvious, and this was something that we would see throughout all of his victims, is that the bulk of the injuries done to them was done while they were still alive. That's messed up. Yeah. Um, Leon, her boyfriend, was quoted in a 2010 article reexamining the case about how even decades later, I mean, at this point, this was 40 years later, he was still haunted by what happened. He said, I was crazy about her at the time. I was devastated by her death. She was beautiful, charming, with a great sense of humor. She had the Irish eyes and the Irish hair. But this is New York City in 1971. There were 2,000 murders that year in the city. Oh, my God. Without any witnesses or usable clues, no real suspects, no one was arrested. This case would remain unsolved until 2011. Holy shit. Yeah. That's crazy. Later in the summer, Rodney is back working at the camp in New Hampshire. A few of the campers go into town to mail some letters. And when they get to the post office, you know what they see? What? Someone who looks an awful lot like their counselor, Mr. Berger, on an FBI wanted poster. Uh-oh. And they kind of laugh it off because, like, oh, you know, this guy's name is different. He's wanted in California. This is New Hampshire. But they still decide to tell their camp director. Oh, good call. Again, be like these kids. <laughs> Learn who to be like and who not to be like. Mm-hmm. So, Army, don't be like. These kids, be like. Be like these kids. The director calls the FBI, who says to act normal. They'd send out some agents to arrest him the next day. He's sent back to California to be tried for the rape, child molestation, torture, and kidnapping of Tally Shapiro. Good. According to one of the detectives, he was being questioned... And this is the quote. I ask him, so tell me about the Tally Shapiro incident. And he basically says, oh, I want to forget all about that. He said, I don't want to talk about things that Rod Alcala did, as if it was a different person. Which did he, is fascinating. Did he have multiple personality disorder or just? No. No. Okay. <laughs> just, just, just I'm a serial killer disorder. I mean, no, that was never. <laughs> well, and, um. It's, I mean, you see this in other serial killers who will talk about some of their crimes as though they didn't do them, even though they did. Or, I mean, do you know what I mean? Not in a, like, multiple personality kind of way, but it's almost like there's a, a detachment from it. There's a, a compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's like, okay, I know what y'all are thinking. Hey, justice is going to be served. Just by the way that you're saying it, I know it's not. <laughs> How am I saying it, Gabby? Like you have a sadness in the depth of your soul, Kim. <sighs> That's just Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> no, as I mentioned, the Shapiro family had moved to Mexico and had no desire to return or to open up that particular wound, which... I get it. No, I like, honestly, I can't blame them. They, they didn't want to participate in the trial. They didn't want to put Tally through that. Because she's come out the other side. And, and I... I absolutely absolutely understand that for sure he was sentenced to three years in prison i don't like that i don't, I don't like, like that, that at either. all mm -mm. he was released in august of 1974 after 34 months apparently magically rehabilitated in fact the prison psychiatrist declared he was considerably improved oh yay so this is our bar. Okay, so, no, actually, I'm curious. What is our bar for someone who sexually assaults children that we say they're considerably improved? Well, they must be pretty fucked up to begin with. So what does considerably improve even mean? I, I just, like, I don't, even putting that phrase next to this crime, I'm just like, I... That's mm. too vague. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> He's on parole. He is living back at his mother's house. He gets a job with a photography company taking pictures at weddings. Oh, no. Two months after he's released, he approaches a 13-year-old girl named Julie at the mall and says he has some posters he wants to show her. I'll drive you to school. So she goes with him, gets in his car, and after noticing 
that they have passed her school and telling him she wants to get out. He grabs her arm and yells at her. He takes her out to Huntington Beach, made her smoke marijuana, forces her to kiss him. Thankfully, nearby is a park ranger who smelled the marijuana. Good on them. (laughs) And decides to look into it, approaches them, and Julie immediately says, I was taken. I don't want to be here. He is holding me against my will. So Rodney is once again arrested. He's convicted of violating his parole and supplying a minor with drugs. Uh, Served a little bit of time, but was out by 1977. Once again, deemed rehabilitated and ready to rejoin society. Hey, psychiatrist, it didn't work any of these other times. Do better. Really? Do better. We know he said that he was rehabilitated last time. We really mean it this time, guys. We really do. Uh... But I, I mean, again, as, as I, I have said, uh, this case frustrates me because you can't say that any of the things he did are things we didn't see coming. Sure. He is obviously a predator. And he continues to get released. And he has no problem getting work. He ends up getting a job at the LA Times as a typesetter and is continuing to work as a wedding photographer. He's a registered sex offender. And not just, uh, okay, Mm, sorry, I'm going (laughs) to clamp down the desire to go on a rant, but I need everyone at home to understand the rant that is living within me right now. (laughs) I think think we can get the vibe. (laughs) Picking up what you're putting down. Are you picking it up? Yeah. You're picking it up hard? Yep. Great. Big time. Also, sidebar, that's why, like, (laughs) psychiatry and psychology for, like, criminal situations like this fascinate me so much because of like what makes someone decide that like I just I just want to understand why like I don't I mean obviously like we don't have like the files to look at to see like, Do you mean what, decide that they're rehabilitated yeah um, yeah like what who yeah. who makes that decision and um slight sidebar in regards to that is I recently talked to someone who's a forensic psychologist that actually works with criminals out of prisons and because mm-hmm. that's what I'm looking at, not like specifically into doing in the future, but something along similar lines. Yeah. And like some of the stuff that he told me was nuts. And so like they I've, obviously this is a different time than what you're talking about right now. Sure. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure things are different now than they were back then. And people have <laughs> learned and are doing things a little differently. But to hear that like someone like this was released so many times after ev- evaluation is bonkers to me. It's just yeah. nuts. And it, I, I, I want to stress, too, I am a big believer in rehabilitation. I sure. am a, a huge believer in um, uh, that being the genuine reason we're sending people to prison is, is to help them so that they can become functioning members of society. <sighs> Some just however. can't, though. Like, However. Yeah. Brosif is putting down some things. <laughs> Uh, and I think we need to stop being so lenient with him. <laughs> Noted. Yeah. So, um, one, okay, so I found this interesting because uh, one of the officers who worked on this case had made a comment that being arrested for these two crimes, for, for um, this most recent one and for, for Tally, what this teaches him is he shouldn't let his victims live. Oh, no. And again, I don't know if that was the leap that he made. We do know he killed somebody already. Sure. However, I do think that's interesting, that the murders really started up... After that. After that. Oh, that's At least the ones up. we know about. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. I mean to, like, laugh evilly at that. It's not, it's not funny, <laughs> haha. It's like funny this is fucked (laughs) yeah no that's definitely more the vibe i'm getting i'm picking up (laughs) um so he's meeting with his parole officer regularly and one day asks him if he can vacation in new york and his parole officer is like oh yeah totally buddy that's a great idea go have fun send me a postcard (sighs) 
Okay. July of 1977, Ellen Hover is a 23-year-old woman living in New York City, recently graduating from Beaver College. She had majored in biology with a minor in music and wanted to be an orchestra conductor. Ellen's father, Herman Hover, owned Ciro's in Hollywood, which was a pretty notorious nightclub. Dean Martin, Lucille Ball, Mickey Rooney Mm -hmm. were all known to hang out there. And Mm -hmm. I actually read an article that said both Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. were her godfathers. What? I know, right? I did not know that. She was very well liked. She was very kind. She was described by a childhood friend as, quote, strikingly beautiful. She had long, dark hair and long, slender arms and legs and carried herself like a dancer. Ellen was very trusting of other people. She came from a Hollywood family, grew up in Beverly Hills and then Great Neck and then Manhattan. Ellen loved people. So July 13th of 1977, New York City is in the midst of a blackout. Ellen was approached by a man on the street asking if she'd like to have her picture taken. She told a friend about it later. She was reported missing on July 15th of 1977. She was supposed to meet with a man and then later go have dinner with someone else. After she didn't show up for dinner and didn't contact her parents, she was reported missing. But there's a lot happening this summer. Tensions were a little bit high. Do you know what else was happening in the summer of 77 in New York City, Gabby? Not specifically, but I know you're going to tell me. It's the summer of Sam. Oh, it's the summer of Sam. Yep. So people are on edge. Oh, yeah. And you have the blackout that just happened. Mm-hmm. So police searched her apartment. They found a notation on her calendar that simply read John Berger. Unlike the last time he used this alias, it was now on the police's and the FBI's radar. He'd gone back to L.A. at this point. His vacay was done. But he was picked up by the police. Unfortunately, without a body, not much you can do. He admitted to meeting with her, but without any evidence of foul play, they couldn't hold him. They tried to get him to take a polygraph. He refused. Her remains would be found 11 months later, hidden under heavy rocks on a hillside on the Rockefeller estate in Westchester. Her sister Victoria would say, She was found wearing my t-shirt. My parents had a weekend house 10 minutes away. She was my role model. I wanted to be just like her. I am devastated, and to this day, it is very hard. It ripped our family apart. That's so sad. But again, not enough evidence. Evidence. And the case was cold until 2011. I can't believe they were cold that long. That's so insane. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of things about this whole situation that are are kind of bonkers that we're going (laughs) to keep diving into. Um, So, again, Rodney is back in L.A. He's doing his thing. He's working at the L.A. Times as a typesetter. Everybody loves him. He also isn't the only killer in the area. The Hillside Strangler has been killing women around. Yeah. Yep. I know that one. He was uh, arrested once more for possessing marijuana. That was kind of a minor blip. Kept his job with the Times. Continued working. He'd go out and charm people into posing for him. Men, women, young people. Often posing nude or in sexually suggestive uh, poses. He met a woman named Sharon Gonzalez who worked for the L.A. Times. They became friends, and he'd tell her all these stories about Hollywood and New York and show her all these pictures from her profile. And Gonzalez would later say, quote, I thought it was weird, <laughs> but I was young. I didn't know anything. When I asked why he took the photos, he said their moms asked him to. That's even worse. Oh, wait. I remember the girls were naked. What? But, like, this again, this shows you how charming he was because she thought he was weird, but she was also like, yeah, okay. Oh, my God. There's so many things wrong with this. (laughs) Oh, so many things. Oh, and it's just going to keep getting better or worse, depending on perspective, I guess. Uh, Jill Barcombe, an 18-year-old girl from New York. She was well-liked and loved. Her aunt would say of her. She was great. She was a 
bubbly little girl. She was just a tiny little thing that couldn't have weighed more than 90 pounds. Her brother recalled, she played trumpet in the high school band. She was a candy striper. She was not a throwaway kid. I don't think anyone's a throwaway kid, but... No, um, I think he's speaking specifically about the fact that she would later leave home and not really run away, but just like leave home and would get grouped as I think it was easy to look at young people who left home early when they were 18, 19, 20 Mm -hmm. and and moving to the city and being like, well, they're just another kid who get lost in the big city kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. He also recalled this was actually very sweet. He recalled. Called a time when he was punished for spitting spinach out at the dinner table and had to stand by the refrigerator. Jill was only four at the time, but she stood right by him with her arm around him until his punishment was done. Her family was huge, too. She had five brothers and five sisters. Um, They all loved each other, but she was very restless. She left home with friends in a van heading out to L.A., she neglected to tell her family her plans initially. Oy. But she she told them after she'd been gone for about a week. And again, okay. coming back to that throwaway kid comment. That, That's you know. true. Okay. We don't know the exact circumstances of how she met Alcala. But her body would be found in November of 1977 in an L.A. ravine near the Hollywood sign. She had massive head trauma having been badly beaten with a rock that would be found near her body and strangled. And again, the majority of the wounds that were found on her were inflicted while she was still alive. There were bite marks on her breast, other wounds on her body. She was nude from the waist down. She'd been strangled in three ways, which is just bizarre. She'd been strangled with her own blue pants, with a buckled belt, and knee-high hose. That is weird. Yeah, and initially, it was assumed she was killed by the Hillside Strangler. Yeah, I mean, that's also a similar MO. Mm-hmm. So, And you do have to wonder if that was intentional or not. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, she also, she had been, she was connected to one of the Strangler victims. She knew one of the victims, so they, they kind of thought, well, okay, they ran in the same circles. Uh, her brother would also say of his sister's death, quote, it wasn't just murder, it wasn't just rape, it was brutal. It was sadistic, and nobody could understand why the things happened to her. That's so awful. A few weeks after Jill's body was found, 27-year-old Georgia Wixted, a nurse, didn't show up to pick her friend up for work. Police were called to check on her. When they arrived at her home, they found a window was open and a screen door was removed. When they went inside, they saw blood everywhere. Georgia was dead. Her nude body was on the floor and had been posed. She had nylon hose wrapped around her neck several times and so tightly knotted that a furrow was carved into the cartilage of her neck. Oh, my God. Cause of death was strangulation and massive head injuries. She had been beaten with a hammer. Her genitals had been mutilated, possibly with the same hammer. Police would find a handprint on the brass bedding as well as DNA on the body. Uh, Of course, this is pre-being able to make a DNA match, but they did take samples. Good on them. News of her death was so hard on her family, her mother had to be admitted to an institution. Oh, that's terrible. Her body was so badly brutalized, the funeral director advised the family that they should not allow viewing of the body because they would not be able to properly put her back together. Oh, my God. And like Jill, police didn't immediately have any suspects for who they could pinpoint this on. In October of 1977, a young woman named Pamela Jean Lamson would meet a photographer in Oakland A's game. He gives her his card. Pamela, who is an aspiring actor and singer, was thrilled to meet someone who could help her on her way. They met on October 8th of 1977 at Fisherman's Wharf. Her body would be found the next day on a trail on Mount Tomalpay. I may not have said that correctly. Happens. She was nude. She had been raped and strangled. Now, Alcala has never been officially charged in Pamela's death. Police remain positive he is the person responsible. Uh, There was a sketch that was circulated of the man seen with Pamela. And uh, if you put the picture side by side, we can put this on our social media. But, like, it's him. 
It's absolutely him. And given everything we know about him and his crimes uh, and how he would approach a lot of his victims, it is a fairly safe bet to say he is the person who murdered Pamela Lampson. In a weird twist, he was about to be questioned for murder in March of 1978, but not for one of his. What? He was questioned as a suspect in the Hillside Strangler case. This overlap, so, man. <laughs> I, it's, it's absolutely insane. So a task force investigating the Hillside Strangler had been going down a list of convicted sex offenders in the area, mm-hmm. and they finally make their way to him. And he had alibis for the killing, so he was crossed off the list, but apparently, and I thought this was hysterical, the police officers who were interviewing him, they disliked him so strongly. Oh, really? So strongly, and they were kind of trying to find a reason they could bring him in. And he had marijuana out on the table. So they took him in for marijuana possession and, like, arrested him for it. <laughs> I mean, but but not murders that he No Not murder. Didn't. No, no, no. Again, they couldn't, they couldn't like, actually figure out a murder that he, he was responsible for. Um, also, as an aside, so the Hillside Strangler, more accurately, we've talked about him enough. I feel like I have to give a quick rundown. Sure. Uh, stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono Jr., they were cousins who killed 10 women together. Bianchi killed two more on his own uh, in the Los Angeles area in the span of a couple months between 1977 and 1978. So Bianchi would flee to Bellingham, Washington, where he killed the two extra women. Oh, yeah. Did you not know that they were connected to here? No. Yeah. Um, He was apprehended after that. Buono died of a heart attack in 2002. Bianchi is still serving out a sentence at Walla Walla State Penitentiary in Washington. Bringing it right back home. But yeah, he's he's right here in our home state. Uh, at some point, I'm sure this will be a ghoulish episode. Um, but it has to be noted how alarmingly similar these cases are. Yeah. On June 24th of 1978, the body of 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb would be found. She was the fourth of eight children. She had long blonde hair and was called Shug by everyone who knew her. She painted, sang, and liked to make her own skirts and dresses. She worked as a legal secretary living in the Santa Monica area. Her body was found in the laundry room of the El Segundo Apartments in California. She had no connection with the apartment building. Oh. Yeah. And that's what's super weird. She didn't live there. She had been strangled with a shoelace so forcefully that the cartilage around her voice box and thyroid were fractured. Jeez. And I, I really want you to think about the level of force. That, that would have to, of shoelace would be able to do that. Of a shoelace to yeah. do that. It's not like a piece of metal. It's like a piece of material. No. Yeah, that's crazy. Also, El Segundo is not that close to Santa Monica. Fun fact. <laughs> I used to, oh, really? I used to work in El Segundo. Um, it, it's right by LAX. It's by the airport. Um, it's mm-hmm. not... I mean, it's not that far, but it's not, like, right next to it. It's definitely, hmm. like, a good at least, like, 20 to 30 minutes away-ish. Okay. So it's not, like, a five-minute drive or anything well, like Well, and that. I, I also don't know, like, if it was near her workplace. <laughs> well, if she if the worked, apartment building. You should, you said she, she lived in Santa Monica. Oh, I thought she had worked as a legal assistant in Santa Monica. She worked as a legal secretary. She was living in the Santa Monica, oh, in the Santa Monica area. Okay. So whatever that... <laughs> means <laughs> yeah i just was i thought that was interesting if santa monica versus i mean they both are la but it's not yeah it's not that close so it just seems kind of even more weird that it would be when again i don't know if yeah. she worked near where yeah. the apartment was because if she worked near there that might that explain might it sense. yeah or if she was just even out at a club there we don't know yeah um she was also sexually assaulted lacerations were found on her genitals as well as her eye Her arms were folded behind her back, posed. She was nude and had her head and face beaten with a piece of wood that would be found at the scene. Her family would not find out about her death for weeks. That's awful. And we haven't even gotten to probably the strangest portion of this case. However, y'all are going to have to wait until (sighs) next week. 
for us to get into that. You're going to leave us with a cliffhanger, aren't you? I am. Uh, that being said, you will only have to wait a week and not the normal week plus a week. I guess that's two weeks. Uh, that, that would be two weeks, yes. <laughs> that, would be, that would be two weeks because we will be releasing our next part on Halloween. Ooh. Ooh. So, uh, to be continued. TBC. TBC. And this brings us to... Which horror films have you been watching now that we're so close to 100 Days of Horror? (laughs) You mean to the end of it? Yes. That's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Well, ironically enough, I'm mostly going to be talking about some TV shows. Ooh. Uh, Although I did go see on Friday, because it was Friday the 13th. Yes, it was. It was. I went and saw the original Friday the 13th on the big screen at the Egyptian Cinema in Capitol Hill in Seattle. Uh, It is the first time I've seen the original Friday the 13th on the big screen. How was it? Oh, it was a blast. Like, nice. You know, I've been going down my list and trying to hit a lot of the classics and seeing them on the big screen because it it genuinely makes a difference in the viewing experience. For sure. Um, I, I remember when I went and saw Nightmare on Elm Street on the big screen and it was the first time I watched the movie being like, ah, I get why this could be scary. You know, like the the it, it really does change your whole viewing experience. So that was really fun. I'm a fan of the Friday the 13th franchise. Um, oh my God, baby Kevin Bacon. I'll never tire of that. That was, I think, his first feature film. And he's just, he's just a little wee little baby in it. I mean, he's not. He's like 20. But like, he's but just Compared to baby. what you know him as, he's a little yeah. baby. He's a wee young thing. Uh, but no, so I have been watching um, one of my favorite shows, which is Our Flag Means Death Season 2 is out. And... Uh, delightful and stabbing me in the heart and uh i don't know it's my my very favorite gay pirates if you've never seen the show it's, it's so a good, good. Time. it's a it's a gay pirate romantic <clears throat> comedy who could say but no there to is, that yeah you, who could say no that but just there there's a lot of like tugging at the the heartstrings and and um it's because uh, you haven't you you watched the first season. You haven't gotten around to the second season yet. Correct. I've watched the first season and I've just been like playing tag with Terrence trying to like get to be available to watch something together because we're both mm. so busy and mm-hmm. we've committed to watching certain things together. So that's oh, one sure, of the yeah. shows that we have to watch together and we keep starting episode one mm. <laughs> and we can't even get through a whole episode just because we've got a bunch going on and we yeah. got distracted with something else I'm going to talk about in a second, but not yet. We haven't been able to proceed with when it, but I'm excited to. At the time of this recording... Um, the first five episodes are out. Oh, wow. There's going to be eight in total. Because they're, they're releasing, the first week they released three. They released two last week. They'll release two this week and then one That's the week after. That's fast that they're releasing So they're, they're doing the entire season in a month. Oh, dang. I didn't realize they were releasing so much at like well, once. It makes sense when you view it because it really is, it's chapters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's divided up essentially into different chapters. And, and it, it, so far, each piece has been kind of logically grouped. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's, it's fantastic. It's, again, if you've not seen the show, it tells the story of, it's 1717, it's the golden age of piracy. And you're following Steed Bonnet, who had been a wealthy landowner, uh, who decides to one day just like leave his wife and children and go become a pirate, meets up with Blackbeard, and the two become buddies. And air quote buddies. And then they smooch. <laughs> and now we need to go to a pirate bar. <laughs> we do need to go to a pirate bar. That is, that is. Again, it's, 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 I'm, I am a, a humongous fan of the show. It's delightful. Um, Taika Waititi is, so is Blackbeard. Reese Darby, who I just freaking love. Werewolves, not swearwolves. Uh, the whole cast is so good. Con O'Neill has been killing it this season. He's just so fantastic. I, I could just talk about this for a whole episode, so I'll, I'll stop. But um, I've also been watching uh, the third season of Chucky is out. Oh, nice. 
And this is another show that it's such a delight. It's so funny. Uh, I love that they've managed to kind of stay canon with the entire franchise of movies. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. It's not trying to be anything other than what it is. It's super queer. So I also love that. Nice. Like you've got great representation on it. Chucky is you just you can't help but kind of root for him. That's uh, fair. But it's it's we're we're at the White House now. Chucky is at the White House, so that's been kind of a hoot. Uh, if you've not seen that series again, that's another one I highly, highly, highly recommend. That one I Devin. haven't watched yet, but I want to because mm-hmm. Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa. Okay, this is what's delightful: is Devin Sawa plays a different character every season. Oh, that's great! I love when I love when people do that kind of stuff. Yes, and no. What I think my favorite thing is that no one makes mention of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not not there's not even a nudge nudge wink wink of like, you look familiar. It's just no. He's just a different character every season. But all, all the be- other characters are consistent. Yeah, it's not anthology. Hmm. I mean, each season can kind of, it can kind of stand alone. It, it's, it's, there's stuff that gets carried over, but it's not, uh, they're all kind of have their own chapter, mm-hmm. but that's been one of the consistent things is that he plays a different character every season, but you're still following the same primary group of teenagers. Nice. I mean, okay. So sidebar. Mm-hmm. So I was in L.A. over the weekend for mm-hmm. my friend's baby shower. And I guess mm-hmm. the same day as the shower was some form of horror palooza, monster palooza, something happening in Burbank. I forgot what the mm-hmm. name of the event was, mm-hmm. but I didn't know until after the fact, which I couldn't have gone anyway because I was at like one of my best friend's baby showers. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Devin Sawa was there. Oh, nice. And, like, he was there for Chucky purposes and, like, oh, sure. all the yeah, horror yeah. stuff that he's been involved in. And so I just figured I would tell well, you about that. Well, because he was in the original, the first Final Destination. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's the um, only one that I think I saw that I really liked, but I also think I saw it because of Devin Saw. And also, fun fact, Casper is now on Netflix in case you want to see young Devin Sawa. <laughs> <laughs> he's liked a few of my tweets on Twitter, so. Ooh, you know. girl, get it. I mean, I mean, he's like been married for like nine. I was like, like yeah, he talks about kids, kids a lot kids, on Twitter yeah. too. It's delightful. He's still no, made, but it, he can still get it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I I I enjoy him, and I enjoy him very much on the show. He's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Chucky season three. Nice. Check out it. Uh, what you been watching? Chuck it out. Huh? Huh? Stupid. Uh, can. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> what you been watching? What I've been watching? Um, I have been watching. Fall of the House of Usher, and I have been waiting Ooh, to watch it. I can't wait it. to start it. Yeah. And truly, anything that Mike Flanagan does, I will watch because, mm-hmm. well, I mean, we've talked about this before. I think I've talked about everything he's ever done that I've ever watched in some creepy critics' corner or another. Sure. But mm-hmm. I'm such a huge fan of all the books that, or stories, or what have you, that have inspired mm-hmm. his work. Um, and those are things I've nerded out on prior to the work. So for me to see it, reimagined in a modern way or however you know he likes to bring things to life mm-hmm. I, i'm always like cringe watching because i'm like hoping it's not going to get ruined by modernization mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you never know if it's going to be good or not you know what i mean yeah. and so like mm-hmm. you're i don't want to get too excited to watch it and then be disappointed like a lot of american horror stories i watch um but so for this especially because it's edgar Allan poe Sure. So excited. And I literally have been like counting down the days until it was going to get released. And of course, it got released right before I was going to L.A. And I was just like, damn it, Terrence is going to want to watch this with me. And I I can't I can't wait. I can't wait. I need to watch it. (laughs) And So like I told him I was like, all right, so I'm going to watch episode one. Can I watch Mm -hmm. it without you or do you need me to be physically with me while we watch this? Or can like you watch yours on yours and I'll watch sure. mine on mine and yeah. we'll we'll come back together and continue watching when I get back in town? He's like, all right, yeah, let's do that. And so I was able to watch. I only had time to watch one and a half episodes because I had a crazy busy weekend. But Kim Douthit. <laughs> I know you and I have differences in opinions on things from time to time. Oh, but, but not not this series this of shows. Shit, this yeah. shit is so good. Oh I've, my god. 
I've been hearing from a lot of people on the interwebs that a lot of people, this is their favorite of his adaptations. I am in agreement 100%. Just in the first episode alone, you get so much and it's so well done and well Mm. thought out. And the details that are like, just like delicately dropped to see if you'll catch it or not. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes me want to watch each episode twice before moving on to the mm. next one to see what I missed the first time around. Like, it's 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 really fucking good. And when I say nice. that, I'm like, uh, what one word of advice, it's really physically dark. <laughs> so if you have light mm. reflection in your home, we, mm-hmm. we have a lot of windows in our house. And so during sure, sure, the sure, day, sure, sure, sure. when I watch stuff, I literally have to close all the blinds and curtains so I can see things. And if you don't do that, you might miss some details. So I just will say that if you're watching it during the day. Okay. Um, but okay. good to know. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's just so good. I, I, I don't want to say anything else because it's so new and I don't want to ruin it for anyone. It's just... You know what you're getting into. I saw a really funny meme recently that was like watching Fall of the House of Usher, realizing, freaking out when each Usher falls, knowing that the title is called Fall of the House of Usher, (laughs) 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 which I thought was really funny and not giving away anything because it is what it is. And like, if you know the story, you know the story, but like, which I do. Right. And so I just thought that was a really funny meme. Um, But dude, it's so good. I can't wait for you. I'm to excited watch it. to start watching it. No, I, I, depending on how uh, how early we get off recording tonight, I might actually hit an episode because highly recommend. I've been I've been really really anxious to start it, but I've been I've been so fracking busy. I've not been able to understand. That's why I haven't mm-hmm. watched our flag means death. I prioritized this over flag means death because I was well so to be fair. To watch it. Our flag means death also started a, a while ago, a couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> um, and also, I mean, again. Gay pirates, man. You know my love of the gay pirates. Gay pirates is what made me actually go to Comic Con for the first time here and have a meltdown. I hate people. <laughs> Just because I cried in line to meet Reese Darby. <laughs> Good reason. It was a very though. emotional time it was for great. me. I was so His proud of you. His agent gave me a hug. Oh my god, such a good story. I love it so much. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. But yeah, I, I, I have was, it. I have to still watch it though. I'm excited to see it. <clears throat> it's one and. Ooh, just uh, the first couple episodes are there's a there's a lot of feelings. It's I know you I think, you warned me a little bit. I had an emotional hangover after watching the first three episodes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm prepared for it. I'm excited to watch mm-hmm. it. But I was going to say um, I watched the new season of Love is Blind because I had to because it's Love is Blind. Um, and you it was to, the you worst season of it I've ever seen. And I want my time back. Like I have a question. What is your bar for worst season of that show? This one. This this Aww. is the bar. It's so bad. Literally, they usually have like five couples that at least get to like get married or like get to wedding day. They had two couples get to wedding day. That's it. I'm like, where's your content, guys? Like, who fucked this one up? Like, they it really is just like not. It's not good. Like, with all the people that they have in this experiment, you have two? That's it? It's just, it's not good. Don't watch it. If you like reality TV, don't. Uh, done. Not you. Oh, sorry. You, were, general, you weren't telling me. Listeners. Um, but I actually had one thing I wanted to talk about that's not like most things we talk about for Creepy Critics Corner. And it's a concert. Because we don't usually talk about concerts. Um, sorry. I went to two. Of the same bands, I got to see Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service play in Seattle and in L.A. last weekend and the weekend prior. And my mind was blown so hard that I had to, like, pick up the pieces off the floor and shove them back in my head. And um, it just was so good. And uh, I was very grateful to my friend Amanda for giving me her extra ticket to the Hollywood Bowl. It was really cool (laughs) seeing them at the Hollywood Bowl and Built to Spill open for them, which I love so much. And I had no idea they were opening for them because they've had different openers for Mm. a lot of their shows. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently Iron and Wine opened for them tonight, which is like one of my other favorite uh, musicians. But it was really special because they they played the song that Terrence and I danced to at our wedding. And it's like our song. And it was just good. And it's the nostalgia 20th anniversary of Give Up and Transatlanticism. And those were like two of the most influential albums of my youth. So (laughs) I was I just nerded out like super hard. I saw someone at the Hollywood Bowl wearing a shirt that said Elder Emo. And I was like, 
Where'd you get that? I, I want it. <laughs> can I can I have it? Um, I too, an elder emo. <laughs> yes, I relatable content. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I am not an elder emo. No, I will. I'm still. I, I am at heart who I was when I was like 19. When it comes to that kind of music, I can't help it. Oh, it's you and my brother nerded out about that stuff because my brother was definitely into a lot of emo music. We did. We did. I honestly like. I feel like I was that guy that when Death Cab got really big, I was like, fuck Death Cab. I don't like them anymore because now they're big. I was that guy. <laughs> and then like, but Transatlanticism, that particular album was so influential. It was like, right. It came out right when I graduated high school and started going to college. And so it was this like massive transition time in my life. And sure. listened to it with Amanda, actually, my friend who I went to the concert with. She and I went to high school and middle school together, too. And so it was cool to see that together. Um, but... Uh, it wasn't a, a movie and it wasn't a, sh- a TV show. It was live music. And um, there you go. just thought I'd switch up the creepy critics corner with a hundred ten out of 10 would recommend <laughs> Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service. But it's a little late because tonight was the last show of their tour. So if you if you snooze, you lose. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So anyway, go listen to their albums are great. Um, <laughs> that's that's what I've been watching and right. listening to ish those are good things yeah yeah cool anywho thanks for uh, listening to us guys uh happy yeah. spooky season it's almost happy spooky season halloweeny um and I'm not, I'm not ready for it yet i know i am i was ready for it last year up until now i've been ready the whole time give me all the pumpkin spice I think it's more I'm not ready for i guess i hit a point where i start to get bummed out because it's going to be over soon because let's face it on november 1st it's Christmas now, Ugh. and I hate it. I miss, there used to be a good week buffer at least so I could come down, and now again, I feel like I end up having some kind of weird hangover because, not from that, but because it's just like all of a sudden, all of my spooky stuff is taken away, and I kind of go into a little bit of a depression. I do too, but you know what makes me even more mad is when Christmas stuff is out now. There's so much oh, yeah. Christmas stuff out now, and it's like, so much Christmas stuff out now. have Halloween. Stop yeah. it. Retail. You guys get so much Christmas time. Give us, give us our spooky. Give me my spooky. Give me my spooky. I need my spooky, like my dog, but like all the time. That's why I named him Spooky. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, anywho, uh-huh. anywho, anywho. I will tell our listeners if you need spooky season year round, you have us to support you because we That's true. are spooky season. Because we're spooky year round. Year round. And you know, even uh-huh. if we do a Christmas topic, at least it's about like true crime and somebody's dead. So like, yeah, somebody's dead. <laughs> So you can rely on us for a real good time. You know what I mean? Hey. Hey. Uh, Anywho, thanks for listening. We hope you appreciate us as much as we appreciate you. (laughs) And um, if you like what we do, head on over to Patreon. Give us your money, please. Um, And we'll give you content. Um, And if you can't afford that, I get it. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Give us a rating, review. Tell us how much you love us. It really makes our day. And we get just excited. And we can give you a shout out. And, you know, everybody goes home happy. So, um Mm But yeah, find us anywhere you have social medias at Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. And having said that, thank you for listening and stay spooky. spooky.